0: Okay, we're back in Revelation chapter 14. And with all of our might and power that God will give us, we will finish this chapter. We hope and pray. Revelation 14. Okay, no water. All right. As I've mentioned in previous studies in chapter 14... We're actually moving towards the <clears throat> judgments of of what is called the bold judgments, or the judgments of of, uh, of the Lord upon the earth. Probably within the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, and they've intensified since we began our study of the uh, tribulation period back in uh, in chapter six. But along the way, we have seen how we have been shown some chronological uh, things happening. You know, in other words, the beginning of of the tribulation period in in chapter 6, where we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as we call them, and especially uh, those four horsemen that uh, give us an idea of the kinds of judgments that are coming, as well as the kinds of... uh, of conditions that the world is going to be in when the tribulation period starts, the seven years, the whole seven years. So oh thank you so much. Appreciate that. Oh, this is the leaning tower of water. There we go. Got straight it now. Thank you. And um And so as as we've seen along the way, at times we jump ahead and we see the intensifying things going on. So uh, now we're just pretty much focused on the last three and a half years. And even the last part of those three and a half years. So it's it's really moving towards uh, the completeness of the judgment that is coming upon the earth, upon those who are going to be dwelling on the earth. We call them the earth dwellers, or as the text calls it that. Those dwelling on the earth during that time, the church is not here. The church has been taken out. The believers of that time, uh, of the tribulation period, many of them have already died for their faith. And there will probably still be a few around because of that everlasting gospel that was preached uh, in verses earlier to where we are here in chapter 14, verse 14. So, this is the scenario that we have. Uh, These are the things that we are beginning to see happening. And we're going to see happen. And so, as we begin in verse 14, there are more angels that appear, as well as the Son of Man. And we read that, In verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, (coughs) a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one, like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. You all know a sickle would probably be that kind of a blade-like instrument that is kind of in a half-moon shape there, uh, very sharp, uh, used mostly for harvesting grains or wheat, corns and all of that. Uh, but now this one is is a divine sickle, as it were. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so, if this is the Son of Man that's doing the reaping, there's, there's a reason why we have to understand that, is because in this section the first few verses, up to verse 16, the one who is doing the reaping is the one who, who can distinguish. Is the one who can distinguish between the wheat and the tares. Y'all remember when Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares? The wheat is good. The tares are not so good. And uh, this is something that is going to be translated into the future of where there is that distinction being made. So here the, the real harvesting is not a harvesting of the distinctions of, of the wheat and the tares because the wheat's already been gathered. Now it's the gathering of, of the tares, but the distinction has to be met. But, but anyway, so it's the Lord that has that uh, ability to do that because later on then an angel is doing some harvesting as well. So uh, he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. So you see another angel comes. This is another type of harvest here, or another uh, reaping. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried out with a loud uh, cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now we have to deal a little bit with distinguishing between what is figurative and what is literal. And the literals will be very important here, but so will the the, the, the figurative language. So we, got, we have to make certain distinctions there when we get there. I have a little map here. Uh, you can't see it real good, but I couldn't find any other kind of real good picture to put here, so I just put this map. But there's a reason for the map, uh, because it's kind of pointing to where Armageddon is going to be, and I'll talk about Armageddon in just a moment. Excuse me, but the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation as a whole deals with pictures of God's triumph and the Antichrist or the beast's defeat. And while it isn't the complete picture, of course, it is a reminder to us that the Lord is in total control of the last days and always maintains His sovereignty throughout. Now, the first part of this chapter... The first part of this chapter, in other words, what we've covered so far in chapter 14, can be broken down into five different sections. Verses 1 through 5 dealt with the 144,000 Jewish believers that were sealed in chapter 7. Verses 6 and 7 dealt with an angel proclaiming the everlasting gospel, giving all those who will be present at that time the opportunity to hear and obey. Verse 8 dealt with the destruction of both the commercial and the religious Babylon. Verses 9 through 11 dealt with the eternal doom for all those who worship the beast, who receive his mark. And verses 12 and 13 dealt with the blessings that will be given to those who die in the Lord during the tribulation period. So as we conclude this chapter tonight, we will see the final judgment upon the earth... ...and its inhabitants before the kingdom is established. And again, in a very general way, but nonetheless, this is what it's pointing towards. And the Apostle John will illustrate this judgment for us... ...by the picture of the harvest and winepress judgment. So notice, there's a harvest judgment and a winepress judgment. We are coming to the close of the tribulation period now... ...before John will pick up again with the bowl judgments. Now, the bowl judgments will be specific judgments... What we're looking at tonight is more of the general things that are happening from heaven to earth. Okay, in other words, they're, they're being set up in heaven for the judgment on earth. Uh, one word that I want to introduce you to, again, I, I, I'm sure you've heard it, is the word Armageddon. Armageddon. har Armageddon. Uh, the, the arrow is pointing to Megiddo. There's a, actually a city that we go to in Israel... Uh, and, and I encourage you, uh, next January, a, a year from this month, we're going to go back to Israel, uh, Lord willing. And uh, But anyway, you get to go to Megiddo and you get to see this uh, large piece of uh, open uh, valley that uh, where, where this final battle, as it were, and we'll talk about that much later uh, in a few weeks, uh, is going to take place. You'll notice, if you can, read it, very small print. But it talks about Revelation 16 and, and 19, especially. And it refers to the last two verses of this chapter, even though the word Armageddon is not used. But this word has been, ex- it's been accepted to symbolize the final battle of the nations. It is the beginning of the end as this day approaches for the earth dwellers. And many today are aware of the coming judgment, but they refuse to listen, and they and they refuse to look to the answer to their problems. See, everybody has problems today. Everybody in this room, we have problems. But we know the one who has the answers to all of our problems. His name is Jesus. And we come to Jesus, we bring Him our problems, we bring Him our, bur- we bring him our burdens, we bring Him our trials and he, because he told us to come he said come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden i'll give you rest no matter what we're facing we we face all trials knowing that we rest in him who is the one who's taking care of us and taking us through every trial every fire every struggle every every flood every storm everything that we go through but that's not the way it is in the world the world does doesn't want that answer they want to find their own answers And yet they're never going to find peace, true peace. We have. Jesus said, peace I give you. Peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, but I give you peace. Shalom, the the Hebrew word for peace, is more than just a greeting. Shalom is the word that means wholeness completeness being held together by God himself. So, people have problems. People will have problems in the tribulation. Major problems in the tribulation, by the way. So many are trying to find their answer to all sorts of problems and all kinds of foolish things which will not save them, but will only lead them to their destruction. Because they refuse to look to the one who has the answers for life, who created us, the one who gave us life, the one who gave us breath. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus as He speaks regarding this final conflict. Somewhat, okay, but but understand what He's saying. John 5, verses 22 and 23, He says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. You see, it is the Son who is going to be the judge. And then He says that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That is why there is a major problem today when people say, Oh, I believe in God, but I don't think that Jesus is is who He says He is. Well, then you're really off the mark. Because the Scriptures are very clear that Jesus is the express image of the Father. And you cannot separate the Father and the Son. You can never separate the Father and the Son. In fact, you cannot ever separate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because it's one God. God. In three persons. But then a couple of verses later in verse 26 it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, (laughs) and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Now have we not seen the term Son of Man here in in, in in the passage we just read in Revelation? Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Now, All who are in the graves is is the right word. All in the graves. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Because there are people who have died in their sins refusing to accept the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Refusing to accept the God who created them. And then it says, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge. Now remember, this is Jesus In in his earthly state, yet he is all God. But he volunteered to come and volunteered to listen to the Father. In a sense, he lowered himself. You've seen that phrase in the scriptures, a little lower than the angels. But that doesn't mean the angels are higher than he is. He came and took on himself flesh, just like us. You could touch him, you could hold him, you could hug him, he could be kissed. He could hold His hand. He came to be like us, yet without sin. I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So this is the understanding that we need to have about Jesus coming to judge. Because those who are in Christ need not fear this coming uh, coming judgment of God because these are seen as, as perfect before God. Or they are seen as perfect before God. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. It's been put into our account. And all of our faults are covered in Jesus. But remember this, all of our faults are covered in Jesus... So that we don't do those again because they've been taken care of on the cross. So there should be no desire in our hearts to ever go back to any of those things that put Jesus there in the first place. Because of his love for us. For those who have rejected Jesus Christ, judgment is coming. Have they been given an opportunity? Yes. Even to the very last moment when we saw here in chapter 14 that there was that angel preaching the everlasting gospel. Because God is is not wanting that any should perish. But what is it going to take? For those who have rejected Christ, judgment is coming. They cannot stand before a holy and a righteous God in their own filthy righteousness. There is no perfection or completeness in them. And in fact, they remain in their sins. Now I can tell you this, all of us in this room are, are, are sinners. We would admit that. The only difference is we are sinners that have been saved by the grace of Almighty God because we have received and accepted the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And therefore, when the Lord sees us, He sees the blood of Jesus and He accounts that blood as our righteousness. The Bible says that we are to put on the righteousness of Christ. So, what are we told in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 6-8? through But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Whatever we think we are good about, or good at, or good with, it's nothing but a filthy rag. And I'm going to be very graphic here, but what this is describing in the Hebrew is a menstrual cloth. And ladies, with all due respect, from the scriptures it tells us, you know, during that time you were unclean until there is that time of purification to become clean again. But please understand, this is the description. All of our righteousnesses. Notice it's not just one righteousness, but everything that we think we are good at or, or, or clean at or, or wonderful at or just marvelous at or perfect at, we're not. All of our all of our righteousnesses are uh, are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there's no whole, there's no one, I should say, who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. Now remember that this is the word given to the children of Israel, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father; we are the clay, and you are our Potter, and all we are. The work of your hand. All we are the work of your hand. We are the work of God's hand. We have to come to grips with that understanding. Even now, as we're looking ahead to the coming of the judge, who is Jesus Christ. What we will see later is that the battle of Armageddon is the climax of the tribulation period for the unsaved. It is a battle they cannot win, even in death. Jesus Christ will judge them in his righteousness and their final destiny after the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth will be the lake of fire. A place of torment. Eternal torment. And a place of separation from God. Folks, I did not make the rules. But my knees shake at them. And if you ever think about things in in this way, think about this. One day that was going to be your destiny. until you accepted the truth of what Christ has done for you. It doesn't become really scary for anybody nowadays until you begin to realize that everything that was prophesied thousands of years ago is coming to pass. And it is coming to pass. If we don't believe it, then we're just closing a blind eye to it. All these things. And so as we aim to conclude chapter 14, we will see the harvest judgment of God upon a Christ-rejecting world. And as we go through these verses, understand that many people today do not like to teach about a God who judges, but only one that loves. But we must look at both aspects of God. For God's love is, is rich and deep, isn't it? Can we not say amen, to the fact that God's love is rich and deep. <laughs> we, we can, because we've experienced it. God's love is rich, and it is deep, but also His judgments are righteous and they are complete. And in fact, they will be complete. Let me quickly give you an example of what I mean about people watering down the truths of the Word of God so as not to offend people. There's one pastor in particular, but he represents many. He's from Glendale, Arizona, who recently concluded this. He said, people today aren't interested in traditional doctrines like justification, sanctification, and redemption. End quote. He says, people today are not interested in traditional doctrines like justification. Oh, by the way, would you, would you mind reading the book of Romans that teaches us all about justification by faith in Christ? (laughs) What, What about sanctification? All throughout the Scriptures, we're taught how we are set apart for the work of God. And redemption itself is Jesus not our Redeemer. If we didn't need a Redeemer, then why do we call Him Redeemer? Do you understand the foolishness of a statement that says that people aren't interested in traditional doctrine? Listen, I want you to know where He is leading them. He's leading them to a God of love who who does not judge sin, and thus, we don't need to be saved. That's really the direction of that kind of teaching. That's what it sounds like to me. And yet this is what Jesus himself said. Are you ready? Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And notice what Jesus said. He said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And look at that underlined word repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, turn from your wicked ways and believe, trust in the good news of Jesus Christ. Would we need to do that if we didn't need to repent? Hello? Hello? I mean, if if Jesus was telling people to repent of their sins and to turn to the good news of Jesus, and so must we. We must tell people not only of God's rich, deep love, but since He is a holy and righteous God, He must and will deal with sin, and we need to let Him know that. Somebody let us know that. That is the reason for the cross. If justification, sanctification, and redemption are no longer important, then the cross of Jesus Christ was unnecessary. Can you imagine that? And so with this in mind, let's dig into these last few verses of chapter 14. Yes, we finally are getting there. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one, like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle and on the earth or sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now the time that is being described in this passage co- coincides actually with the six trumpet and the six bowl judgments. The sixth one. The gathering together of the nations of the world for judgment. The gathering of the nations for the world of the world for judgment. And the one sitting on the cloud, of course, is Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's called the Son of Man. The presence of clouds. Very quickly, because we've talked about this in time past. But the presence of clouds in this vision signifies and represents the presence of God. It is also significant that Christ is wearing a crown, but it is a... Stephanos, Stephanos, a victor's crown. Which is a reminder that Jesus has been victorious in redeeming not only man, but this earth back to himself. Thus, it is Jesus who steps forth to issue judgment with his sharp sickle. And again, when we look at this harvest uh, harvest judgment, it is a judgment of distinction. In a sense, there is the dividing of the wheat and the tares, as I mentioned earlier, and it is the Lord who alone can, can know the heart of everyone who is, a, who is part of the wheat and, a part, and those are part of the tares. Uh, keep that in mind in just a moment. We'll kind of refer to it again. But the harvest that is, this passage speaks of is not the gathering of the good wheat into the barn, but rather the crop of tares, the weeds, or the false grain, as it were. And certain prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures fit this case. For example, Jeremiah 51, verse 33. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor when it is time to thresh her, yet a little while and the time of her harvest will come. The threshing floor, of course, is, is that which which uh, allows the, that which was, was, was harvested to, to be uh broken up so that you can get the good out of it and then the rest was, was actually to be uh, destroyed or burned. But uh, all of Babylon is, is like the threshing floor. God is just going to come and thresh the whole thing. And really there's not going to be any good to be found. Joel chapter 3 verse 11. In this prophecy it says, Assemble and come all you nations and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle. Notice the same wording. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down for the winepress is full. Here in this verse you see both types of judgments that we're dealing with tonight. For the winepress is full, the vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Now, what we are needing to understand and to accept is that the world is growing more and more wicked each and every day that we await the return of Jesus Christ until the point where the Lord will step in to thrust His sickle and reap this ripe harvest. Now, the word ripe is very important for us to understand. The word ripe in verse 15 means this. It means... Dry, withered, and overripe. Dry, withered, and overripe. It is, is is a certain Greek word that means dry, withered, and overripe to the point of being rotten. Some of you guys that, you know, used to be in athletics and, you know, after a game or after a practice and you went into the locker room and some guy was in there... It didn't smell too good. Man, what did you tell Man, you sure smell ripe. Don't mean that you smell, you know, it had that kind of connotation. Man, you smell pretty bad, pretty rotten, you know. And so that's the understanding of this word. The harvest is ripe. In effect, this world will have grown rotten. It will have grown dry and withered. It's getting there, isn't it? This is a tremendously wicked world we're living in already. Just like in the days of Noah and Lot, as we learned this past weekend. Well, there's another thing. When, when a harvest is rotten or ripe, it is useless. It is useless. In other words, this world will have grown rotten, dry, and withered, so much so that it will be ready for the divine harvest. And again, I want to let you read the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 13, verse 38. He says, The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And this is so, so uh, painful. But, but these are the words of Jesus. Jesus and I refer to something I said on on Sunday, but these are the words of Jesus, meek and mild. Really? How about Jesus, the righteous one? Jesus, the just one. Jesus, the one who came the first time not to judge, but to save if people would only believe. And he says, I'll come again. And you you go out, and you tell people. About me, that they might come to salvation, and I'll redeem them, I'll buy them back from the wicked one. While it is true that God has been very patient and long suffering toward us, yet one day his long suffering will come to an end and his judgment will be poured out, as the prophet Isaiah tells us. In Isaiah 34, verse 8, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. I have to interject here. The cause of Zion, the cause of Zion is very important. This is, not a, this is not some kind of an allegorical or metaphoric thing. It is a real Zion. The Zion that God is preparing for the last days today in Israel, the land of Israel, the people of Israel. That's the cause of Zion. Please don't, don't confuse it with what others say. Is it, is it really happening? Because Israel is no longer, uh, you know, uh, anything to consider. No, it's very much a nation to consider because God said it would be. And we need to remember that when we study through the whole of the Word of God. Now, the sharp sickle of Christ will not fail to do its work thoroughly. The earth must be reaped of its evil. The cup of iniquity is full. The harvest is ripe. And the time of God's judgment has come. But while the church waits for the rapture, there is good harvest before us even now. I I say this because I want to encourage you. Jesus said, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. They're not ripe like the word ripe in the book of Revelation there where we just saw. He says they're white. They're clean. They're ready for harvest. The kind of harvest of bringing people into the kingdom of God. There is that kind of harvest that every time you tell someone about Jesus and they turn their lives to to the Lord and, and receive Him, just as you did if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of the harvest. And they will be a part of the harvest. That's the importance of our evangelism, of our, of our proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone proclaimed it to us. We weren't born with a knowledge of it. We may have grown up in a religious household, but the fact of the matter is, we still had to come to the truth of the gospel, didn't we? And then we had to receive it, accept it, and believe it and commit our lives and then we realize God loved us from the very beginning and God has cho- had chosen us from the very beginning and we have to understand that about the way God works we can't understand it fully but we can know this that God that did that come to me whosoever will come and when we do come we go inside the, the, that gate into his kingdom and we look and he says "Save from the foundation of the world wow I don't know how God does that, but he's good at it and I'm going to let him do it, right? I'm just going to receive it and thank the Lord for it and man, I'm going to go on into the kingdom. Well, this last section of this chapter describes more a harvest of destruction. We said the first part is a harvest of distinction. Here's a harvest of destruction. Then, then it does this harvest of just separating the wheat and the tares. Let's go to verse 17. It says "Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Now notice, remember that the Lord said he sends out the angels and their angels are the ones that gather the harvest. Well, here here we have one angel who has the sickle. Uh, And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and he cried out uh, with a loud uh, cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Oh, by the way, Right there is a different word. So we'll talk about that in a moment. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Wow. Okay. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. For those who may not know... This intense picture that we just read about, this intense picture of judgment was the inspiration for one of our great patriotic songs, the battle hymn of the republic. Remember the words, the first words, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage, which is actually the wine press or the vineyard, I should say. I'm sorry. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful or fateful lightning of his terrible, swift sword. His truth is marching on. Isn't that interesting? Oh, we sing that uh, song you know, around July the 4th thereabouts. Maybe on July the fourth would be nice, but that's what it, it comes from. This and uh, when you read through the whole of that battle hymn of the Republic, a bunch of verses, but whoa, it's pretty heavy. Taken right out of, of Scripture. Well, we're not going to deal with that for now. But but let me add to this passage both verses 17 through 20 in Revelation 14. But But let me also add this passage as another illustration from the book of Isaiah. And and look carefully at it. Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6. It says, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? By the way, Edom and Bozrah. This is not figurative, allegorical. This is real places. Both of these places are what we would have to consider as Islamic today. At least Arabic, as it were, or something that has to do with Islam, even though we we don't have that term mentioned here. It says, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is this who comes? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So the description is, this is the Lord. This is the arm of the Lord who is Christ himself. Now notice this. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? There's a word that we just read in Revelation 14. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. And I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. And the year of my redeemed has come. I looked. But there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. This this is quite a picture of the righteous anger of God in judgment and of Christ who is the judge. This should, this should wake up anybody that is wondering where they stand in life today. It's better to stand with the Lord who is our God who loves us with an everlasting love who loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's some perishing going on here. It's awfully heavy to listen to, but it's the truth of the Word of God. How much do we have to listen to? How much do we have to read? How long will it take for some people to get the understanding That if they receive and accept the truth of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us, they will have life everlasting and avoid all of this for eternity. They will be with God and with Christ in light, in love. So, we ourselves look and we say, oh, thank God, because this is just too heavy. I, I, I want to tell you this. This is really more important than Denver and Seattle. So you know what I'm talking about. This coming Sunday, the Super Bowl. I'm not telling you not to watch. I'm just telling you there's there's some things that are more important than what people are making important today. Here we see the wrath of God linked to a wine press. In those days, men would go into the wine press barefooted to tread out the grapes. Just like, you remember Lucy and that one Lucy? They, they, I talked about it. Yeah. But they, treaded out, they tread out the grapes, which were, by the way, ripe or mature. They were mature grapes. In other words, they were full of fruit and juice in them. They weren't dry or withered or rotten. So there's two words, in in English one word, ripe and ripe, but in, in the Greek they're two different, totally different words. The wine press was usually a shallow pit with a hole on the side leading to a container. As they would stomp on these grapes with their feet, the juice would flow through the hole into the container. Many times the red juice would splatter out of the ripe grapes and would splash upon their garments and stain them. Well, obviously... Unless they forgot their garments. Then they were full of the grape juice on them. But that's the idea behind the harvest of judgment. It isn't a distinction or a separation. It is a total and complete destruction. That's the idea here. The angel mentioned in verse 18, having the power over fire... May be the same angel of Revelation 8 verse 3. And I'll read it to you. Revelation 8 verse 3 says, Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. Now remember the golden censer would have would have that which was offered with fire as the prayers unto the Lord. So that's why they think it's the, the power of, over fire is this, is this particular angel. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Is this angel in effect saying to the sickle wielding angel it's time for judgment and answer to the prayers of God's people. They've prayed for it. They've waited for it. They've longed for it. Now the time has come for God to judge the earth. Is that what the angel is saying? Quite possibly. Who has been crying out for vengeance? Especially the tribulation saints. Remember they were under the altar saying Lord when will you Finally, get us vengeance for our death. Lastly, verse 20 tells us that this winepress was trampled outside the city of Jerusalem. The winepress was trampled outside the city of Jerusalem. In chapters 16 and verse 19, we'll read about the battle of Armageddon in which the nations of the world will come against Jerusalem in an unsuccessful attempt to destroy her and to kill her people. How many times have the Jewish people been, have, have uh, people, have others tried to kill them off? Many times, many times. It's going to happen again. The sad thing is, even in the book of Revelation, as we will see later, there is a number already given. We already talked about it once. A number of given, of how many people are going to die in the land of Jerusalem or the land of Israel itself. But the measurement that is given, this 1,600 furlongs, is roughly the length of Israel from north to south, uh, from the Jordan Valley down to Edom. It's about uh, 200 miles. This battle will not be much of a battle, by the way. It will end up becoming God's winepress. This is the point where we have to kind of distinguish between figurative and Literal. The literal is the most important. Armageddon. The picture in verse 20 is a shocking image of judgment. So think about that. Our task in these last days is to witness Jesus Christ and His gospel, to witness the Word of God. The world must hear His message of salvation. And we must proclaim it to the uttermost parts of the earth. There's not a lot of time left till all of this is going to happen. We were told back in the early 70s that we should get ready because Jesus was coming. Things were happening in the world that people started taking note of in the Bible, and they started realizing, hey, there's an Israel again. As a matter of fact, when Israel rose up in 1948, May 15, 1948, as a nation, acknowledged by the United Nations, barely, but when they were acknowledged as a nation, People had to start taking note of something happening biblically. And so here they were trying to exist as a people in the land, not scattered throughout the whole world, even though many of the Jews were actually at the beginning, they were mostly scattered throughout the whole world. And then they started coming and and started repopulating Israel, the land. But then they had those major wars. 1948, the day after, they started having to do everything to stay in existence. Because they were surrounded by all Arab countries that did not want them. And and they even had leaders who said, that We're going to drive them into the ocean. Into the Mediterranean Sea. But they survived. That another conflict in 1956. And then in 1967 was a six-day war. Read about it, learn about it. A Few years later, 1973, Yom Kippur, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, they put their guard down, and the Syrians and the Egyptians planned to attack them on their most holy day. They lost a lot of people, but they rallied, they gathered their troops together, And in fact, they pushed their enemies out. Do you think it did it on their own? They were, they're so much smaller than all the other nations. Do you think they did it on their own or was God's hand upon them? Think about it. When a whole division of tanks come down from the Golan Heights, down into the areas where the, the, the kibbutzes were, and it was only one Israeli tank that was taking care of them all, what do you think? Luck? Or was it the hand of God? They not only drove Syria back, they took over the Golan Heights, Israel did. You get to go to the Golan Heights. This is a commercial, by the way. You get to go to the Golan Heights if you go to Israel with us in January. You get to go there. You get to see it. You'll see tanks along the way. They keep them there so you can see the tanks that were destroyed by the Israeli army that was just Caught by surprise, but they they rallied, they got together and did what they needed to do. All this time, they've had a few friends, but they're losing friends. And we're getting very close, no matter what, even our president said last night in the State of Union, oh, you know, we are, you're going to be behind Israel. Well, that would be nice if you would just talk to them like they're our friends. Be careful about how you deal with Israel because it's God's people. My goodness. That's what's wrong with politics today. It's not about politics. It's about prophecy. It's about the fulfillment of it. And God has fulfilled it. And is fulfilling it now. Because of this, <clears throat> our task is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our task, and I had this part of it, my commercial, our task is to go and support Israel. That's what we do when we go. We support the people of Israel, we stand with them because we know they're there because God wants them there. And we cannot have this futuristic view of the scriptures without Israel being there well they're there so what do you say let's go let me close with two verses in Psalm 126 those who sow in tears shall reap in joy he who continually goes forth weeping bearing seed for sowing shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaths with him We also are to bear seed for sowing. We also are to be a part of this wonderful harvest. Have you sowed in tears? Will you reap in joy before the great day of the coming of the Lord? We need to have a heart that cries for God to do His work in and among us, in our nation, in the world, so that when Jesus comes, there will be a tremendous harvest of people that He will gather unto Himself, John 14, so that where He is, so shall we also be. Shall we pray? Lord, we are at times very fearful of the things that take place in this world. Sometimes, Lord.